0: And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohn. Today, writer and host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast, Paris Marx joins us to critically examine Silicon Valley's approach to the gig economy and labor, what California's Prop 22 could mean for the future of work, the outsourced, exploited, and hidden labor behind new surveillance technologies, and approaches to worker solidarity. Before we begin, please make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void podcast on your favorite podcast platform now. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Paris. We're really looking forward to this conversation. I've been really fascinated by your work and foremost, I'm most interested to learn how you arrived at the work you do and the approach you take to your work.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I'm really happy to be to be joining you today um, and, you know, obviously to chat about all of these topics. Um, you know, it's always great to have a critical conversation about technology and, you know, the larger kind of structures that we're living within. I think, I think to the question of how I arrive, you know, at at this place where I'm thinking about these things, you know, I, I think that, I think that's something that I'm maybe not even completely clear on, you know, it, it, obviously comes from a lot of reading, a lot of lived experience through, you know, work and, and through travel, you know, I, I, started university after high school, like, like many people do. Um, and then I dropped out after a few years because I couldn't really find my footing. Um, and I took a few years to, you know, kind of work and, and also to travel, to live abroad, those sorts of things, um, to try to broaden my horizons a little bit, I guess. And, you know, not just in this kind of like, you know, you know, gap year sense of, uh, you know, volunteerism and, and just like, you know, going to do a trip through Europe. Um, you know I did try to actually do a bit more understanding of of what was going on, like learn more about the history, all those sorts of things. but as I was doing that, I also took the opportunity to read a lot about um, you know the history of of how we got to how we how we got to where we are today um, you know a lot of left wing thinkers on political economy, economics, things like that. Um, you know at the time, I would say I, I was still kind of within the realm of being being interested in or or at least open to some of these kind of technological ideas um you know for a time I used to read a, a fair bit of stuff about digital nomads and um you know Tim Ferriss and oh, yeah. all these sorts of, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. but then I I don't know what would have been the trigger I think I still would have been critical of it at that time because I was reading that stuff along with like Karl Marx and Rosa Luxemburg right. and Lenin and all this sort of stuff but then you know, eventually that that sort of broke and I really started to look deeper into Silicon Valley and tech as well, what was going on there, um, kind of informed by these things I was already reading from like left-wing history and political economy and things like that. Um, and just seeing how a lot of these big promises that were being made to us about technology and the tech industry were often not being, I think, like followed through on. We were not actually realizing these these benefits, at least in the sense of like, I think a lot of the masses, um, like like a lot of working people and a lot of the middle class, were not seeing the kind of benefits that were being promoted by these technologies, and I'm sure that we'll get into some of those things in the conversation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Did you did you have like an awakening moment? Was there like something that like in my, like I was radicalized at, very early on in my PhD. I don't want to say I was completely uncritical, but I'm going to say that I was definitely paying more attention to. The positive or optimistic ways that tech had presented itself, and I—I I started. I was actually very fortunate. I got to start before I was in my PhD. I got to found a uh, college degree in new media, and it was actually kind of really great because it's like I got to d- invent like a degree that would help us look critically at it and it based around social good and civic engagement. But it really wasn't until—and I was very fortunate to have a really great colleague, Matt Applegate, who helped me get into my PhD, but also helped me like kind of understand much more leftist approaches but also like much more critical approaches to how we even engage with academia and tech and so when I started I started as a cultural studies phd or still was and media archaeology and media archaeology kind of like today very much gets like accused of being like object fetishism um but when I went into it it was like kind of like this very eye-opening part about how one of the things that I disregarded or or didn't focus on. And my, my radicalization moment was in material history and labor. And I think one of the big mistakes i had made in the first few years, which not to say that the students who graduated with it missed out, they may have just gotten a more production oriented uh, degree. But there was a really important awakening, I guess, or an eye opening. I want to use the term awakening because it sounds like crazy on the internet. Um, but there's a, like this, this moment where I was like, oh, okay, so now I realize like the material history of tech has really been, a, there's a story we're told and then there's a reality in which we live in, and I think, do you what, what was do you have like a moment that you saw that, or is there has that always been how you've seen it? And it's very like, is it, it's important for us to explain to people that we have to look beyond the things we use into the ways in which they've been told to us and how to use them.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really fascinating, and un- unfortunately, I think you know it doesn't make it doesn't make the greatest story. But I don't think that there's a specific moment that I could really point to as. Like a radicalizing moment or anything like that, right? Like I'm, I'm sure I still kind of experienced the same degree of, um, you know, a- attention and and um, being more critical of tech after 2016. But I don't think it really began at 2016. It, w- it was kind of before that, right? And I think I would say that kind of the trajectory for me was more through geography through to technology. Um, You know, obviously I had been reading, you know, a lot of kind of left-wing history and and philosophy, political economy, you know, as I was saying, um, even at the end of high school through my early time in my undergrad program, um, then as I dropped out and then as I went back to it as well. um, But then when I went back to it, I had a clearer understanding of the things that I was interested in. And part of that was urban geography, cities, transportation, things like that, Right. And so, you know, then I was reading a lot of like David Harvey, um, Henri Lefebvre, like these kind of left-wing writers about the city. Um, but then from there, it was kind of observing these things that were happening in the city. And at the time, tech companies were, were kind of making that move into urban space, right? So obviously, you know, you have Uber with the ride-hailing services. There was a lot of discussion around autonomous vehicles. The smart city was kind of in full swing. Um, so you had a lot of these kind of narratives about how technology was going to transform the city and it was also at a time where you know they weren't brand new so I was able to dig into kind of those earlier promises and then how they had not been fulfilled um, or or see, it seemed like that they would not be fulfilled anytime in the near future um, and so that was I think a wake-up moment for at least part of the tech industry and kind of a lot of the the promises that are made and not fulfilled, um, and I think it would be difficult for me to say, looking back, whether I I was as critical of like you know Facebook and the broader tech industry at that time, or if that came later, because I simply don't remember. But I think that it would have been connected to that kind of entry into it from the city and and from urban technology then to the larger tech industry and seeing what was going on, kind of extending those analyses of the power relationships within the context of the city Mm -hmm. to the broader tech industry and, you know, certain other spheres.
2: That's incredible. And I think that's, you know, you hit on something that's really been in the news or not in the news, but in the Twitter sphere, which really doesn't represent real life, but kind of like shows us like the the id behind a lot of this. And um, the recent weird thing, and like I, like a lot of people are saying, like don't don't make me don't make me defend Yang here. But the uh, the idea of geography is really important because of this. A lot of people are unaware that the way structures, physical structures are built, are embedded with white supremacy or racism, and it's very easy to reduce that to they're just roads and not see that. So I, I think it's you you're, I, I love to hear a little bit more about how geography, like. How do you you work with that where you talk about geography in the sense of like a misunderstanding of space and then the idea of tech being both a space, a tech and an industry and also a space like Silicon Valley? What's your thoughts on like how Silicon Valley even operates?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And I think it's really interesting to kind of consider how Silicon Valley and the tech industry thinks about history and then actually looking at the history of cities. So, you know, I think it won't be a surprise to many of your listeners if I say that in Silicon Valley there is kind of, I think a a certain degree of disdain for history or at least among kind of the elite of Silicon Valley um, in the sense that they want to create their own history and they don't want um, the reality of history to interfere with those narratives, right? And so they want to kind of, Make us forget about the large role that the public sector, that government spending, played in making Silicon Valley what it is today. Um, you know the how women were kind of central to the early tech industry, and then were pushed out in favor of um, more privileged white men, who then took it over and you know have kind of maintained that kind of hold on the industry. I would argue, um, but I think then when you consider that, and then you also look back at the history of the city and how the city has evolved. Like For me, when I have looked at the city and when I read about the history of the city, it was really instructive to look at the transformation that happened when the automobile came in, right? The automobile was a technology that disrupted the city, but it was not the technology itself that did that disrupting. It was the variety of capitalist interests that formed around the automobile that lobbied to ensure that the uh, the geography the regulations, um, the planning, the subsidies and tax systems were all changed to create a world that was built around the automobile, that was built around their product, right? And so then we have the changing of the roads for automobiles. We have the building of the suburbs because they are designed for automobiles. Um, and so there's this whole industry that gets built up around it. But then that that kind of change also makes us dependent on the automobile itself and on these industries so then they get to extract kind of constant profits from that, right? And so I think you know that's just a short way to put it. But then if we kind of fast forward through history, if we look at the present and what a lot of tech companies are proposing, um, I feel like they don't they don't look at that history. They they don't maybe they don't care or or maybe it doesn't matter to them. I don't know. But there's often not very much challenging. I think of the role of the automobile, even though it has created so many problems in the city in terms of deaths, in terms of environmental issues, um, in terms of inequalities and and harms that arise from that. Um, You know, if you want, I can go into that more, but I think a lot of people will already be aware of those things, Um, and so they're not they're not really challenged. And when they are, it's at like a rhetorical level, like the the, these kind of problems of of the deaths and um, of the spatial inequalities is used to justify. Um, solutions like ride-hailing services and autonomous vehicles. But I feel like a lot of those technologies don't actually solve the problem um, because they're not actually dealing with the power structures that created these problems in the first place. And they're just kind of using this mistake of thinking that if we just put this new technology into the city, then that will solve these problems, like you know, this kind of techno-determinist mindset, right? And so I think that's kind of this, this link that um, helped me to understand the role that technology was playing as I observed the history of urban spaces um, and and the way that technology was kind of working in that.
0: Yeah, it's funny because, well, I don't think funny is the right way to phrase it, but it to me, when Uber and Lyft continue to financialize and bring us down the road of neoliberal policy and reality, we're creating greater abstraction of a social reality that is already being perceived as ex-Nylo. As people look and think this was already there and it always was there, there's this air of inevitability that the, that the automobile and the suburbs were always just as they were in the United States. And now people are growing up with Uber and Lyft and thinking that ride hailing services are similarly not just a solution, but ingrained in society, this era of inevitability. And as we look to people like Elon Musk wanting to build hyperloops and tunnels that can bring just a portion of what a regular subway system can do, are you looking and finding much reason to be optimistic about potential solutions uh, in terms of public infrastructure and interesting projects that are developing at the moment to break from the mythology of Silicon Valley narrative of uh, I, I don't want to just say Tesla dominance, but neo hyper neoliberal dominance of this and financialization of of the future of transport.
1: Yeah, I I very much share you know all those concerns that you're outlining there. Right, I think it's it's tough to say. Um, on one hand, I I I have to feel somewhat optimistic, um, just because I don't think I would be able to like continue if if I didn't. Um, but at the same time, I I still feel like a lot of the the public and even kind of the the policy space is still kind of consumed with the visions that come out of silicon valley you know i would say you know there are a lot of academics and i think even more like policy people people who write about cities who are challenging this and that's not to say like they haven't been in the past um like there's been some great critical work that has been done on all this stuff for years but i think it's receiving more attention now and attention that it should have received a long time ago i would also say though uh, you know obviously there, there is more of an emphasis, I think, on bicycles and on transit being made in recent years, which is, which is really welcome um, and which is, which is absolutely essential to creating you know, better cities, more sustainable cities, cities that are more centered around their communities and their populations than what is necessary for capital interests. But I would also say that even as we are, are making that move toward those things, you can see that Silicon Valley is trying to capture aspects of it. So like with this kind of push toward micro mobility services um, that I think is, is really worrying. And on top of that, I would say that I think from my end, when I observe these changes that are happening, I'm still worried that even if we go down the path of building more bike lanes and improving transit services, if we don't make larger changes to the structures that are governing the city right now, in the sense of, you know, the way that capital accumulation works, the financialization that you were talking about, we're just going to have have it so that the communities that get these infrastructures and these services will see price increases that will push out the very people who would benefit from them. And, you know, we're already seeing this thing in, in, in cities around the world. You know, Los Angeles is a particular case of this, where they've been expanding the transit system, they've been expanding um, bike services, but in the neighborhoods that receive those things, the prices increase. And so people in Los Angeles, some people have um, begun, begun to fear when these things come into their communities because they fear that they're going to be pushed out, right? And so, you know, as you were saying, Jamie, like, we need to consider um, that the history of these things, the, the way that cities were built in a racist way and in an unequal way, if we are going to deal with these issues in the future, because just putting in new services or new technologies won't address it if we don't deal with these kind of larger systemic problems.
0: So yesterday, Secretary of uh, Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, uh, says that there is racism physically built into some of our highways, echoing back to earlier in our conversation about Robert Moses and institutional redlining in America and abroad, but that sparked a response from the American conservative group, Young America's Foundation, and they mockingly wrote, "This is not a parody because there's such a removal from the actual planning, urban and suburban planning, that constituted these highways and these structures themselves, and the very notion of having this discussion or or uh, having a public discourse about this, as you mentioned earlier, the rhetorical discussion is almost so baseline. So, have you found ways to approach?" conversations both within your field as well as uh, in your work that help to make these discussions easier, that help to uh, not shame folks for living in an area because they associate their town uh, as being maybe institutionally Part of the problem, I know that in Merrick, where I live on Long Island, Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020 uh, featured prominently because I live in a town that unfortunately redlined and uh, right across the bridge was Freeport. And there was an infamous uh, viral video of a woman yelling at uh, protesters to go back to where they came from, which was literally right over the bridge, which is literally maybe – 1500 feet from the Trader Joe's and it led to massive protests because I think that woman couldn't separate her town being the product of the benefit of institutional racism versus being or versus feeling like she was being told that she was actually a racist herself.
1: Yeah. I'm, I I think this is actually going to be quite a difficult, um, conversation that is going to need to be had. Um, Like, as you say, I think that there are a lot of people who don't know the history of their cities, don't know the history of how they came to be that the way that they are. Um, And they live in their neighborhoods and they generally like their neighborhoods, especially because they don't really have anything else to compare that neighborhood to. So, you know, why wouldn't you like your neighborhood? Right. Um, You know, obviously there's been this discussion in California in particular, about NIMBYs, not in my backyard, these people opposing development. I think that's often quite a reductionist conversation um, that misses a lot of the nuances of how different groups might be opposing projects or why they might be opposing projects. And I think in some cases, there are people who have anti-development sentiments that are um, justified because they can see how development has hurt them and their communities in the past. Um, And I think that those things need to be addressed. But um, I I can't really say to you that I can bring an answer to how we fix these things or have these discussions in a proper way. Um, You know, obviously, I, I write for a specific audience. Obviously, this is something that I've only been writing about for a few years. I find personally, something that often helps in these discussions is When you can actually talk about that history and give people that a kind of broader perspective on their communities and on their cities and how they came to be so they can see those sorts of things. But whether that means that they are going to then be okay with changes to their communities, um, you know, I can't say. Um, And I'm not sure, you know, I'll I'll completely admit that I'm still not sure how we get around some of those objections. and. I would say I don't fully understand what all of those objections are rooted in. Like, I think that there are some that are rooted in racism, undoubtedly. I think there are others that are rooted in um, people who are concerned about property values because their house has become um, kind of like their retirement plan or or their investment plan um, because we turned housing into an investment, um, into a a financial tool. Um, And I think that's actually a big problem. And- You know, there there are a whole ton of other reasons why people might have issues with their communities being changed. That will obviously need to be addressed, but unfortunately, don't have the answer—at least not yet—for how we have those conversations and try to deal with those issues.
2: Yeah, it's been—I mean—one of our techniques that I've been happy to use is pedagogy because the tools we have, um, we're doing our best, and you're you're obviously doing your best as well, making your product and your podcast is, is enlightening. And I think it does inspire conversation. I think sometimes we do have to have these important and uncomfortable conversations. I think to me, that's one of the biggest jumps that we have to make is like not so much understanding some of the words that we have to incorporate into our vocabulary, but actually the ability to feel uncomfortable about what, where we are in our place. And I think that's, I think sometimes the trailheads that we may bring up with, with, uh um, some of our conversations are things that we have to kind of engage with otherwise we do perpetuate it and i think you brought this up before with like cities when they're being developed or spaces when they're being developed are adopting the modes that had already been developed and so if we don't intervene between them then we simply just repurpose or reproduce it and it, it kind of reminds me like when you were talking about that all i kept thinking was like infrastructure being reinvented and how like silicon valley like just has this weird addiction to like reinventing everything that's already exists in their own weird gentrified way, like reinventing the bus or reinventing the bodega. And in that case, like actually calling it bodega, which is really terrible. And I think one of those things is like, if we, if we become too myopic, we just accept that Silicon Valley is going to invent the future and we can't really let that. And I, I want to just ask a question about like infrastructures of tech companies too, when it comes to that, because the internal infrastructure that comes from these, we often don't pay attention to. And I, I can't remember what episode I was listening to, um, but it, it, I'm sure it's come up more than once, which is that these aren't just, when we watch a YouTube video, this possibly possibly with uh, Becca Lewis, uh, when we watch a YouTube video, we're not just watching a video, but we're watching a collaboration between hundreds of people in order to make that, uh, bring it to our audience and to our eyes and then the systems in play that allow YouTubers to kind of manipulate that infrastructure because they learn the streets. It's almost like the privilege of those who are first in learn how to manipulate that space. Where can we create... And this is just an opinion question, but where could we create a, a break? Where I think you mentioned it before about how we're now coming to the point where we're asking more questions about it, which is really great. But do you see like the next few years becoming more inquisitive toward these structures, or do you see us? Do you see Silicon Valley and, and tech companies pushing back as best as they can to kind of rebrand themselves, but not really fixing anything?
1: Yeah, I I think that you know I I I, I hope, and and I also think that we'll ultimately see both, right? You know, I think there's okay. no question that Silicon Valley will respond to these things in a way that is designed to make us think that they are addressing the problems, right? I think that we're already seeing that with Google kind of changing the way that it does its ad tracking now to say that, um, you know, I can't remember exactly how it works, but that like it won't be technically tracking you in the same way, but you know, it'll still be collecting a ton of information on you. Facebook is trying to... Make us believe that um, it's targeted advertising is you know not actually as bad as it is, or you know I can't remember exactly how they're framing it um, in response to what Apple is doing. you know, Apple is trying to make us believe that it's this company that is really focused on privacy and really cares about our privacy um, so I think there's no question that these major companies are going to try to make us believe um, that they are I guess, friendly monopolies uh, in the next few yeah, years. And that we monopoly. really, yeah, you know, I, I think that's inevitable. And I think that we do need to push back on it. But I, I would also like to see, um, you know, I, I think as you're saying, like, you know, you gave the example of Becca Lewis, who I spoke to. Um, but there are a lot more people who I think are looking more deeply at the structures of these tech companies and the technologies that they have created Um, And looking at the outcomes of those technologies and of those structures um, and of whether the way that they have been designed uh, is affecting our societies and the way that we interact in a negative way. And, you know, I think that is obvious, um, but I also think it still needs to be outlined and detailed so we can fully understand it. And then so the question becomes, how do we then address that? And I think it will be interesting to see if people design, you know, alternative kind of systems that try to deal with these things. I think that's certainly one route to go down. But I also think that those alternatives will always struggle because, again, like when we look at the way that the larger system is set up, it's set up so these companies like Facebook, like Apple, like Google are are designed to or or are set up to succeed and to dominate, right? Um, you know, if we have some kind of smaller startup that arises that doesn't use tracking and and doesn't show you ads in the same way or whatever, you know, it's designed for a more um, for a better purpose for for an experience that cares more about the user. I think it's still going to have a really difficult time. Succeeding because it just doesn't have the same advantages that one of these kind of Silicon Valley startups would have. It's not going to, um, you know, obviously monopolies, but even if uh, a company started up and with a similar model to one of these monopolies today, um, they are going to have an easier time than a, a company that tries to challenge them because they don't have access then to. The venture capital funds that allow them to run into the loss for a long period of time. Um, you know, the capitalist structures are set up in a way so that companies that kind of challenge, kind of fundamentally challenge those structures are going to have a much more difficult time to succeed. And so I would say that if we are going to see a fundamental challenge that is going to be successful in creating communications tools and digital platforms that help us to interact and to think about the way that we interact in a different way um my view is that the best way to do that is through a kind of public cooperative process where there is some sort of state funding um or or state role involved in creating those sorts of things i love
2: that i absolutely agree with that it's I think that's one of the mi- biggest misunderstandings of our recent era and including obviously the every incident since 2016 is a misunderstanding of what this, the, the levels of support from the state government and to us really have to be and where we're getting clouded by marketing sales and so forth. I want to talk to you about uh, Amazon and labor rights, human rights. And speaking of monopolies, I mean, they're one of the big A's of the like the, the MAF, you know, MAAF, you know, just massive systems of these these labor-eating restructuring of our entire world. We've become very used, speaking of infrastructure, we've basically reordered, at least in the West, we've reordered our our way of being in America to expect packages to kind of like show up the next day. And we've kind of gotten used to the idea that the post office doesn't operate because of structural pro- problems that were kind of by design of both Silicon Valley and our government. How do we start? So first I want to know what's your thoughts on the most recent uh, outcome of the union drive in Alabama for Amazon and the idea of workers' rights? And then what happens? How do we start reminding ourselves that we have to, labor rights have to be considered in this. Otherwise we're going to funnel ourselves into this, turning humans into just functioning machines of this large Maf system, the M-A-A-F <laughs> uh, mega structures of our of our so- social media tech and merch, mercantile systems.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, at the Amazon fulfillment center there um, did all of us like a huge service in taking on that company and having this union drive and drawing attention to the problems at Amazon um, and you know trying to unionize their workplace. Uh, you know, obviously, we know that they were not successful, unfortunately, but I think that on, on one hand, they showed how going up against a large company like Amazon is always going to be difficult. And, you know, we can see this in U.S. labor history, you know, when when workers tried to go up against Walmart, um, you know, way back in the day when they went up against GM um, and and other major industries, it was always You know quite a difficult challenge and i think it's going to be really challenging in an uh, an environment where unionization rates are so low and where the kind of structures to get a formal union um, are set up in a way that makes them really difficult and that gives the employer uh, kind of a lot of power over the process so, you know, I think that they did a great service. I think they inspired a lot of other workers. Um, I think they showed a lot of the public the issues at Amazon. And obviously, I, I hope that they are successful in the future um, if, they decide, if they decide to continue fighting for this or if they use other tools to try to um, improve their workplaces and get Amazon to respond. I think to your larger question about tech and labor, um, I think that this plays into a general issue or a general trend from the past, what, I guess, half century or so, where we have come to, I think, think more individualistically, but also to see ourselves more as consumers than workers. And so, you know, we, we look at what is being offered by a lot of these tech companies, and a lot of these products are sold to us as convenience, or as a status symbol that you know, us as a consumer can kind of show off. We use this thing. You know, think of like the iPhone and and the Apple products. But you know, there's more than that as well. Tesla, obviously, all this stuff is partly status symbol as well. But there's a very kind of consumerist narrative around all these things. You know, Amazon in particular, um, about getting your packages as cheaply and as quickly as possible. And you know, all this messaging is focused around the consumer, and it's kind of designed to make you ignore or not think about the the worker and the labor behind this, and I would say that a lot of these technological solutions are designed to make us not think about it and to even hide the human labor that goes into delivering that service. Right? Um, you know, like there's there are these sidewalk robots that are being promoted now, and a lot of these things are driven and overseen by humans that you'll never see because they are in some office or or whatever in. Um, a poor country in a in a developing country right paid really low wages because the internet and these um digital communications technologies allow this to happen um you know that's that's built into a lot of these smart city technologies as well it's about hiding the human labor that's needed to maintain the city and to maintain these systems but you don't see it and it seems seamless um you know it's it's part of this kind of frictionless world this frictionless environment that we're supposed to be living in but as you as you mentioned in your in your question you know there's a real issue here when we ignore the labor because what we've seen over the past number of decades not just you know since the growth of these um, high technology companies since the 1990s but the kind of shift to a more individualistic society the, the shift to a society that gives more power to the corporation and to the consumer than the worker has been has been one where wages, where working conditions, where unionization um, has all been eroded, where the quality of our work in our workplaces has also been eroded. And I think that we constantly see this with these new technologies that are being promoted. And, and obviously, Amazon is a really good example of this, but I think none other than the gig economy is another, where a lot of workers who um, would have previously been considered employees or had some greater degree of control over their work um, like taxi workers uh, are now controlled and managed by an algorithm are treated like independent contractors and have very few or no protections at work and this is kind of being normalized and I think a really big risk of something like prop 22 is that which is you know this this law in California, which was passed in November, supported by Uber and the other gig economy companies that uh, essentially cemented the gig workers as independent contractors, is that now this has been legally codified and there is the risk that after reclassifying these workers as independent contractors, this is another move to degrade and potentially reclassify workers in other industries So you get this kind of the kind of standard for all workers then moves down again. And, you know, we've seen this continually decrease for a number of decades. So I think it's a real risk. And the technologies and the narratives around the technologies make it easier for us to ignore these things and and not see them as they are occurring unless we are actively paying attention or actively being affected by it
2: in the moment. Right. Oh man, I, that is such. You, what a what a phenomenal answer. Thank you. Uh, you made me think of something that was quite probably very messed up in my mind. As you were saying that, I had no idea about the operators of these drones, these sidewalk drones, and it made me think about how interesting it is that we have like drone operators that bomb children in, uh, in other countries out of out of Las Vegas and are. Little sidewalk commerce drones are by exploited labor outside our country, and it's just like I know that's not really an equivalent, but it's just something that made me think in like a really dark way about how this is all operating. And uh, I just started, you know, I was just a point I'm making. I, I as no not really a question, but the uh, question I think is more about like the the gig economy thing, which is something that I I was very fearful of several years ago, especially when you're teaching like internet studies or anything, which is we've been also beyond the idea of like being like conditioned to be consumers. We've also been conditioned to think that like side hustles are kind of like normalized. And one of the things that I kept warning people about is the normalization of side hustles and the gig economy. And I I mean, this everywhere from Uber to Instagram star is that at some point or another, your side hustle becomes normalized as just a a side hustle. That's part of the job. And then you're, you're basically going to have to scale to a third Thing, whatever your the job plus the side hustle plus a, another side hustle because you've normalized these things, and I and I kind of worry that this is kind of like we're, what we're watching in real time happen, and without intervention, of course. And this is this is saying what we we have worked to do in order to intervene in this history, but this is like my the fear of like that we we are really creating we're watching a structure being built in real time that's very similar to the structures of the battalions of the early twentieth century. But we're seeing it again in a less of a visible manner. And I think that's the big trick. I think that's the the key here is that digital media, even the media we're on right now, exists in this two-dimensional space. And so we don't really have the opportunity to physically interact with it. Whereas labor may seem different when you see it. And I think that's a, a, a one of the biggest tricks being pulled. And I would just love to know just your thought on, on making the invisible visible and what we can be doing, per- perhaps to just maybe humanize some of these laborers that are behind the scenes as to even even from everyone from Instagram influencer to warehouse worker, do we give them a voice? Do we give them tools or do we just do our best to amplify the hard work that they're doing to understand that their work is labor rather than as something that's kind of like conditioned to us to be normal?
1: Yeah, I, I I think it's really a mix of all that. And before I answer your question, I just want to briefly go back to your point about the drones. Um, and and I would just I would just <laughs> note that there's a, a science fiction movie called Sleep Dealer um, from about ten years yeah. ago. It's a it's a Mexican science fiction movie, and it actually deals with these this question of kind of remote work on different sides of borders. Um, and you know, it has workers in in Mexico who are doing this kind of remote work in the United States, but then it also has the drone pilots in the United States who are using drones for corporate um, purposes instead of just for military purposes. Uh, And so I I wrote about it last year, but I think it offers, you know, I I think in some science fiction, the way it can do it, it just offers us an opportunity to think about the kind of society that we are in the process of creating, Um, even if, you know, maybe it might not be exactly like what the future will look like, but I think it, you know, allows us that opportunity to, to reflect and consider. So on your on onto your broader question about, you know, the the invisible invisibilization of of labor and, and these side hustles, you know, I think I think you can really see it with with Dolly Parton, right? With this shift where she had this song, uh, working nine to five. And then she recently did this uh, song for I believe it was Squarespace that aired in a commercial during the Super Bowl, I think, where it's five to nine. So it's about your side hustle after you come home from work. And um then you then you kind of get to your side hustle job. And I, I think it's really interesting because and you know I'm certainly not an expert on um, international labor and how things play out in in other countries. But I was talking to Gavin Mueller who wrote a book called Breaking things at work recently. and he said that like when he moved to Europe um, to the Netherlands in particular, it was really kind of he could see this this really significant difference where the people that he got to know in Europe, Could kind of have a hobby and kind of do things outside of work, whereas in the United States it was much more like people were working multiple jobs, and if they weren't, then after they were working, you know, they were doing a side hustle or something like that. Like it's his culture that much that's much more focused around work, and that's in part because um, you know these structures have been developed where people need to work more because pay is so low and they have few benefits and and not a strong social safety net and you know obviously healthcare is really expensive um so there are all these kind of factors that create a society where people have to work more um in order just to get by um, and naturally the the gig economy companies and uh, other tech companies are taking advantage of this um because you know the gig economy really is the product of the 2008 recession Um, and we see that multiple times through history where after the great depression and other recessions there is an effort to bring in ways that people can work in a way where they kind of exploit themselves by accepting lower wages or as low of wages as possible because there's such a large labor pool to draw from Um, and and so naturally employers take advantage of that and so you know the gig economy is is simply The the tech industry's version of that, where they are taking advantage of a time of economic precarity for a lot of people and creating a new system that, in this sense, was justified by using the language of technology right, Um, and the language of innovation and to make us think that this is the way that we work in the future when it's really a return to something that occurred in the past, kind of bringing that back and kind of um, degrading. Uh, labor standards and workers rights to serve, you know, tech companies in this case, um, because those are the, that's the industry that has a lot of power right now. And so I think that we have been seeing a lot of workers, you know, I don't think, I, I think a lot of workers were always aware of this and always knew this, but I think that they have been being given more of a platform and more of a voice, more of an ability to share what it is like, to work in their industries, because you know there's this. Um, Sam Harnett wrote this great paper, uh, or or article, or or whatnot, about the media's reporting on the gig economy and how it really presented a distorted view of how work actually works there. Because it just repeated the talking points of these companies and kind of the the stories of what it was like to work in the gig economy were like you know me a journalist went and worked on one of these apps for a day or a few days and this is what it was like oh it was so interesting blah 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 and it's not really it wasn't really looking at what it was actually like for people who were relying on this who had lost other jobs or or had few other sources of income that they could depend on and so i think that those people are getting more of a voice right now and are able to actually explain what their situations are like and are kind of Forcing a lot of people who didn't recognize that before to recognize these issues, um, but I, I think the larger question then is, you know, how do these things get changed? Because a- again, you know, going back to Prop Twenty Two, we saw that the gig companies were able to push this forward um, in a way that again is really worrying because it degraded workers' rights and it allowed the broader public to vote to do that. And obviously there've been polls that have done since that show that the public felt that they were misled about what, the, um, what Prop 22 would actually do if they voted for it. And they kind of, kind of regret having voted for it. Um, and now there are more court cases happening in countries around the world that are challenging the kind of contractor classification of these workers um, that, are, that are having politicians and courts recognize that these companies are taking advantage of these workers and that is because of the work that these workers have done to force the public but also these specific figures in power to accept and to recognize that they're being exploited um, and so I think that more of that is coming um, and the question is will they have the power and the solidarity to be able to get the changes that they, require and that I think we all require in order to maintain their um, and, and all of our kind of standard of life, standard of living, the the rights and protections that we expect when we're at work, or, or will these tech companies be able to use the power and influence that they've gained over the past decade or a few decades, depending on what companies we're talking about, to push through laws that are, I think, really an attack
0: on our, our lives and our well-being.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that was an incredible answer. That out. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paris, where can people find you and what are you working on? Um, yeah, they can, they can find me on Twitter, uh,
1: at Paris Marks. Um, obviously, I, I make the podcast every week, Tech Won't Save Us. I'm also writing a book on transportation and, and technology and you know all these kind of issues that we've been talking about today. Um, but that one won't be out for a little bit yet. Uh, so if people want to know what I'm up to, they can just follow me on Twitter.
2: That's great. Yeah. Well, good luck on the book too. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Your insights are at these, it's, it's always really great to talk to somebody who crosses a lot of the different constituent fields that have, that, that encourage us to broaden our mindsets to multiple perspectives. So thank you so much for doing that work and continuing to do that work. As uh, on your podcast and in your writing. Thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, um, so
1: thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. You can stream, support, and subscribe to Paris's "Tech Won't Save Us" podcast at techwon'tsave.us, and make sure to support him on Patreon. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.